today on CityCast Madison. Madison is a transient and global city. One group of Madisonians has an extremely unique origin story. Cuban Madisonians who were a part of the Mariel Boatlift Exodus in 1980. Haven't heard of it? Well, you're not alone. That history is not widely shared and is often misunderstood. A new podcast called WPR Reports, Uprooted, aims to change all of that. Uprooted is about one of the most complicated migrations in U.S. history, when nearly 15,000 Cuban refugees were sent to Fort McCoy in Sparta, Wisconsin. And what happened after? We sat down with the co-creators Maureen McCollum and Omar Granados to learn more. It's Tuesday, August 22nd. I'm Bianca Martin, and here's what Madison's talking about. Maureen, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Omar, what's up? Hi, how are you? Thanks for having us here. Very good. Uh, The podcast is amazing. Right off the bat, why tell this story? Maureen, starting with you. Sure. Well, I have heard about how, you know, thousands of Mario refugees from Cuba had settled in southwest Wisconsin. Like, since I moved to lacrosse in college, it was always this story that was there, but no one really knew a lot of details. And so for years, I had just wanted to learn more about why this had happened. And more specifically, I wanted to hear from the people, the Cuban refugees themselves who had gone through it. So Omar, what got you interested in doing this story? I uh, moved to lacrosse about 10 years ago for uh, my job at the University of Wisconsin lacrosse. And I of course, had no idea. I am from Cuba, so I had no idea that there were Cubans in lacrosse. I thought I was the only one. I uh, was able to connect with this community, and I've been a researcher of migration and cultural migration for for many years now. And I was um, always intrigued by um, that part of the Mariel Exodus, which is, you know, a, a very historically important uh, moment in the history of, of the United States and Cuba. About 55,000 people in um, in the Maria Exodus were sent to this military bases like Fort McCoy in Sparta. And it's it's a part of the history that hasn't, you know, uh, been researched enough. And, you know, in, in the podcast, we, we really get into why, uh, what are the reasons that part of the Exodus hasn't really been studied in depth. So that was my main motivation. I'm a little embarrassed myself. I had never heard of Mariel Boatlift. Like this is new to me, and it's such a engaging, compelling story of you know of, of folks' experiences. I mean, you shouldn't be embarrassed because there are a lot of people, even folks who grew up in Lacrosse, were alive in the 1980s and had no idea that this had occurred. You know, a half hour from their homes. I think what's really interesting about this is that 15,000 people got spent to Sparta, to Fort McCoy, and most left. Like, you know, they got out of Fort McCoy because their family came to pick them up. They found sponsors. But then they're like, I'm not staying here. I'm going to Chicago. I'm going back to Florida. Why would I stay in southwest Wisconsin? So it was even more interesting for me to talk with people who decided, like, you know what? I'm going to make lacrosse my home. I'm going to stay in Sparta. I'm going to stay in Toma. And, like, why? Why? why did they stay? And a lot of reasons that they stayed was just because they fell in love with the area. They they fell in love with um, women. They started families. They found jobs. So 
yeah, it's just it's fascinating. You know, a number of folks came to Madison and settled. They found love here <laughs> in our good city. And you have, you know, a number of voices who settled in Madison in this in this podcast. Um, but for some historical context, as we're saying, because not everyone knows what this is like, what was the Mariel Boat Lift? So the Mariel Boat Lift was this moment in 1980 when a number of people in Cuba just kind of had had enough and decided, like, I want to get out. I need to leave. They wanted to be reunited with family. Maybe they were becoming wary of the promises of communism, just different restrictions that took place uh, with on the island. And and there were a number of protests that had occurred on the island. And um, finally, President Fidel Castro opened up this particular port, the Port of Mariel, and said, you can leave. So people in Florida who had family in Cuba, sent boats down to collect their family members. But lo and behold, very quickly, tens of thousands of people started showing up to leave to make this very treacherous journey across the streets of Florida um, to Florida. And then once they got there, of course, there wasn't enough room in Florida for people to stay. So that's why they then got sent to different military bases uh, around Wisconsin. And one of the things that we get into in the podcast are a lot of the factors that that played into the lead up of the Mario boat lift because it is a very intensive history. And it's something that Omar knows a lot about because he lived through it. He was in Cuba when it took place. Yeah. And, and a big part of the podcast is talking about some of the stereotypes or the sort of about who came, right? And the common story back then, Omar, is that Castro like dumped his criminals on us which is in in one way true about some of the people that came to Fort McCoy, but it's way more complex than that. And that's what you get into in the podcast. Right. Um, as uh, Maureen was saying, you know, this is this is one of the most complex moments in, in the history of migration and, you know, between Cuba and the United States. Uh, what is interesting about Mariel is precisely, number one, the racial composition of that exodus. It's, it's the moment where 45% of, of Mariel exodus, uh, the people that came, uh, self-identified as Black or mixed race. So a lot of the stereotypes that are you're, you're mentioning are linked to that history of racial discrimination of the Cuban revolution and pre-revolutionary Cuba. You know, an association of crime with with uh, blackness that is historically rooted in Cuban culture. So yes, there is a moment in in which the exodus begins to be presented as this is this is the scum of society. And and it wasn't only black people, but you know, people with different um, sexual orientations, people with the religious beliefs, but mostly people that had uh, expressed some kind of discontent with the government. Intellectuals, artists, um, you know, people in the LGTB community. So this is this is the narrative that, number one, the, the Cuban government sells. It's striking to me to hear this part of it, listening to the podcast, because all I could think of was the parallels of criminalizing um, and, and stereotyping Black people and knowing these are Black Cubans. Some of them were people who had committed crimes in Cuba. Correct. So the the statistics that we're seeing, you know, in the last five years, are, are talk about about six or seven percent of the Mario population having uh, uh, hardened criminal records. You know, people that were actually 
in jail for a serious crime. Uh, another issue was that the uh, allegedly criminal history that uh, that these people had activity in the black market, which is in in, in Cuban society, is basically everyday survival. You know, if you don't if you don't deal in the black market, you're not going to eat that night. So, and he's talking about like selling loose leaf paper for schools or selling aspirin or selling cigarettes or, you know, selling your rations that you have. Right. Nail salon at your house to like make a little extra money or, you know, you raised a couple of chickens and you're trying to sell them or something like that. Or activities like smoking marijuana, which which the Cuban government had really, really uh, strict laws about and and um and uh, it was very, you know, seriously punished in in um, in Cuban society. Um, and another part of that was that this is this is the first time that the that the Cuban Revolution is really having to deal with popular discontent. So let's go back to the summer of 1980, when people came from Sparta to Madison. Maureen, what generally was the system to get folks sponsors in Madison? So to get folks sponsors in Madison, there were a number of ways that could happen. One ways, as Omar mentioned before, were a lot of churches got involved to help people find sponsors. And then there were just different groups. So as an example, Ricardo Gonzalez, who's a former common council member, in Madison, he was a owner of the Cardinal Bar at the time. He and his family had left Cuba as refugees in the early 1960s, shortly after Castro had come into power. And so when he knew that this was all going on, he had gone to visit Fort McCoy. It completely broke his heart to see the, the living situation that, that these people were enduring. So he had gotten together and really sort of rallied people in Madison to say, hey, we should sponsor these people. They had first focused on families, then single women, and then members of the LGBTQ community. So eventually, you know, he found people homes. He then himself decided to sponsor a group of musicians. It was a band of like 10 guys called the Cuban Salsa Band. They played around Madison. They played at the Cardinal Bar a lot. They uh, played around the upper Midwest. And so his role as a sponsor was to make sure they had housing to make sure that they could pay their rent, to make sure that they had food, just to really help them kind of learn the systems of what it is to live in Madison, you know, now a capitalist society where you have to pay bills and follow rules and, and things that were completely different than what their lives were like in Cuba. I'm really glad that you brought Ricardo up. He's kind of a superstar here in Madison. He is. And let me tell you, he is a wealth of knowledge on, well, probably everything in his life. But like when it comes to Cuban history, if you ever want to like get to know what has happened in Cuba, go hang out with Ricardo. I'm glad you brought him up because in this in this salsa band that he sponsored, what I heard some of his reasoning behind choosing to sponsor, it was a 12-person band, was to bridge divides between, you know, the refugees who are coming and locals through music, which is brilliant. And we have a, a clip of, of Ricardo talking about that. I gave him a speech about how music is the language that breaks down the barriers. It's an international language. You don't have to speak it, you listen to it, you feel it. And that concept is what I thought the Cuban Salsa Band would help to generate goodwill towards the refugees. 
it was a little complicated. It, it didn't work out as well as he had planned, which was a disappointing thing to learn. But he actually ended up losing some good faith in the sponsorees uh, because they were fighting and you know dealing with navigating this new space. Right. I think once the uh, refugees, uh, as Maureen was saying, uh, um, started to face, you know, uh, American society and the and the actual uh, way ways of life of American society, they they um, were completely unprepared for it, and they, you know, these are these are young men, mostly in their in their twenties, who had been limited in their abilities to drink a beer or you know like have fun in general oh they were under under control yeah like they didn't have fun there was a story in in the podcast about a young man who was 16 who uh when he came in the Mario boat lift he didn't even know where he was being sent to so these are the kind of people that we're talking about you know they 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 get released into a town like Madison after being kept up in Fort McCoy for months. This is a military barracks. Right. What What do you think is going to happen? This This young men don't know how to speak English. A lot of a lot of the uh, so called criminal activity that they're involved in is due to misunderstanding of the law or or miscommunication with law enforcement, um, and of course their need to survive economically, which is why. Many of them end up involved in, in you know, drug-related uh, activities. You know, we have lots of stories about violence, and 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 we have lots of stories about um, altercations between Cubans and um, and Wisconsinites, for sure. Yeah. Well, and you talked too before, Omar, about like the issue of toxic masculinity that was rampant among some men in, in Cuba. The Madison Police Department put out a brochure to say things like, this is how you treat a woman with respect. You don't whistle at them. You don't holler at them as they're walking down the street. So it was just things like that that they were, that they were learning to navigate. Those reputational issues were really complex. Um, but I want to talk about another person that you feature. Osvaldo Duruti. Duruti, a musician who settled in Madison, still lives here today. And uh, so hello, if you're listening. So when he got here, he didn't find a sponsor and he was moved out of state. Um, nonetheless, he found his way back. What I like about Madison, the people, the people, I don't know why, but they are different and I was 21, I had, you know, I was dancer, you know, discoteca, all the discoteca, me and my friend, yeah. It was a nice city. Osvaldo's story is like many of the folks you talk to gets into that complexity, you know, running into crime and, and that sort of thing. Um, let's hear him talk about that part of the journey. I remember the past, you know, we've been, you know, uh, committing a lot of crime. We were, you know, uh, doing a lot of wrong thing, but, you know, everybody, had done wrong in life, man. But, you know, uh, even though that it been 40 years, you know, we're not perfect. We just want to, you know, uh, be part of American dream. Maureen, can you talk about his story? When Omar and I went to meet him, I was just, we left and our jaws were just dropped. We could not believe that he had been through so much 
He has experienced so many lives. And it is interesting because he is someone who he found out I was talking with some of his friends. So he called me one day and he's like, hey, you're talking to my buddies. You should come over and talk with me. I got a lot of stories for you. And uh, which, you know, I mean, for these men, many of them had never talked about this. They, they're in their 60s now. And that's also like why this happened now. They, they did not want to talk about it 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But now they're ready to talk about it. So Osvaldo, once he finally ended up in Madison, you know, he really loved going to like the discotecas. He loved to dance. I think he was very popular with the ladies. He struggled with the language and also struggled to find work. So he fell into the drug trade and that just, you know, led him down many roads. He at one point got shot because of a jealous ex-girlfriend. He landed in prison a few times because of the drug convictions. Uh, While he was in prison at one point, he decided that the only way he was going to get back to Cuba, because at this point he just wanted to go home, he decided the only way he was going to get back to Cuba was if he killed Jeffrey Dahmer in prison, who was in prison at the same time, which is really, really heartbreaking and shocking. He explained that story to us, and I had to explain to Omar who Jeffrey Dahmer was, which was really bonkers. You're like, I'm sorry to have to do this, but Wisconsin does have a history of scary people. Yes, a very, very scary people. And so, and actually, side note, really interesting in that in that Dahmer Netflix series that came out last year, someone plays Osvaldo, but the scene is not true to what actually happened. And when I talked with Osvaldo afterwards, he like was very upset about it. But that's the thing is he's just wanted to share his story because he looks back on all these things that happened since coming to the U.S. And he's thankful for being here. Um, and as he says at one point, he's like, I have no regrets, but all I can do is learn from my mistakes and try to better my life now. What would you say the lasting impact of this Cuban exile uprooting has had on Madison? So I could say for the Madison community, but maybe this is also like the lasting impact on me that that maybe it'll have on others, is just to think about how um, every story has multiple sides to it. There is... A story like this, especially something as complicated as a massive global migration, it's not just cut and dry where, you know, Castro emptied his prisons and and sent all these bad people here. Like, that's not what was going on. So to really think about when when you tell yourself stories like that or you hear that to question like, well, wait, but why were they in prison and what happened once they got here and what were the circumstances surrounding whether or not they were welcomed into the community? What happened to their life? Did they learn from their mistakes? How long do we have to like carry the burden of these mistakes that we've made decades ago? Things like that. So just really questioning when you hear stereotypes about a person asking, why does that exist? And is it real? And what more can I learn from that person? Maybe I should go say hi to them. As a society, we have this understanding of refugees and migrants as people that should adapt to the to the rules by which we we live our lives and should learn English and should you know when in reality it's it's us who are benefiting from the influx of of uh, you know different migrations and different populations into a state like Wisconsin. Omar, Maureen, thank you so much. Thank you, Bianca. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. That's Maureen McCollum, co-host and executive producer of WPR Reports Uprooted, with co-host and producer Omar Granados. 
If you want to check out their podcast, go visit our show note for the link. Before we get to the news, we have a special sponsored message about an event coming up in September. Hey, project managers, lean in. Hi, I'm Andrea. I'm a content director here at CityCast, and I'm pleased to share the following interview with the sponsor of this episode, Scrum Day 2023. Joining me is Mary Iqbal. She's a leading Scrum trainer with Scrum.org and the founder of Rebel Scrum. This whole Scrum Day conference was her idea. Mary, welcome to CityCast Madison. Thank you so much for having me. So Scrum Day 2023 is coming up on September 14th, and it's bringing in thought leaders and agile experts from around the country here to Madison. Why is Madison the perfect place for Scrum Day 2023? So first off, Madison is just a beautiful city. I love living here. It's got a lot of great things to offer. But not only that, Madison is actually a technology leader. A lot of people don't realize that in 2020, the country's biggest technology migration actually took place in Madison, Wisconsin, according to LinkedIn data. That's huge. Yeah, it's huge. So we've got a lot of technology here in Madison, and it's growing. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to have a Scrum Day conference here. Scrum is a way of organizing teams, and it's most often used with technology teams. So there's a lot of synergy between Madison, between Scrum and technology. I'm somewhat new to Scrum, but from what I understand, this is basically a way for teams to get projects done together better, like they're breaking what they're up to into smaller parts. Can you explain it? Well, that's actually a really great explanation. So Scrum is exactly what you said. It's all about delivering value sooner. And the way you deliver value sooner is to break it up into smaller deliverables and work together with a small cross-functional team that are given goals, not tasks. And we trust them to get the job done. Okay, but to do an entire conference all about Scrum, how did you get that idea? So the real truth is I went to a conference a number of years ago and it was fantastic, but I also thought, you know, I can do this. And not only can I do this, I can do this better. I want to bring together the people that I want to hear from, the people that have the best ideas. And I've always loved ideas because ideas are what change the world, especially with Scrum, because I do believe that Scrum makes the world a better place because it empowers the team, the people who are doing the work decide how to achieve their work. When we go to work each day, I think all of us, we want to do a good job, right? And we want the impediments that are in our way to be removed so that we can do a good job. So Scrum really empowers teams to say, okay, you control your work, right? Here's the goal. You decide how you're going to work together to do that thing. That's what I love about Scrum. And why do a conference? So I've always believed in the power of ideas, ideas to change the world. And especially when you do something like Scrum, you really need to understand the why behind what you're doing. That's why we're bringing together the best thought leaders that can help articulate that in a very concise way. All right. So who can we expect? Who are some of the exciting guests coming out? We actually have Stanford University coming out, and they're going to be talking about their own human resources and shared services, agile transformation. So I think that's going to be fascinating. We also have the CEO of Scrum.org. So Scrum.org is the leading certification provider for Scrum. And we have the CEO, Dave West, is coming out. We've got my personal favorite authors, Todd Miller, Ryan Ripley, the authors of Fixing Your Scrum. We've got all the speakers that I want to hear from, the best ideas, the best talkers, the best conversations. And actually what I'm looking forward to most about this conference is 
one of our keynotes, actually our morning keynote, is not going to be a keynote. It's going to be an activity because Scrum is all about empowering teams, right? And teams are made of people. So it's not going to be your standard keynote. It's going to be an activity that brings out the best in the teams, the people that are there at the conference. Because at the end of the day, that's who delivers value is the people. And getting those ideas and those conversations brings the best and makes it even better. Gosh, conferences are so nerve wracking, though. Like you have your lanyard, you have stale hotel coffee. Usually you have your pile of brand new business cards and you're just you're nervously trying to figure out who do I even hand it to? Where do I sit? Like, how do you bring people together to have organic networking conversations? That is so true. When you go to a conference, half of the reason you go is yes, to hear about the speakers. And we've got great speakers. But Another half of the reason you go to a conference is to network with people. And it is so awkward, especially since we're coming back from COVID. How do we get back into that and talking to strangers, for goodness sakes? So we're going to make that easy. We're actually doing guided networking events to help you introduce yourself to those peers. So taking the pressure off, it's going to be fantastic. So to see those incredible keynotes and to be part of those conversations in Madison, get your tickets today to Scrum Day 2023. And when you do, thank them for sponsoring CityCast Madison. Early bird pricing of $595 is available through August 10th. To see their schedule and learn more about the speakers, visit www.scrumday.org. Mary Iqbal, thank you so much for coming on CityCast Madison. We're looking forward to seeing you all at Scrum Day. Thank you so much. And here's what else Madison's talking about. Bolstering quality education for all. The Madison School District got a $1 million research grant to help further student achievement. The district will join five other school districts across the U.S. that are trying to help raise graduation rates by addressing social issues that students face. Things like poverty, racism, and physical and mental health. The funding comes from a philanthropy group called Blue Meridian Partners. And the first ever Madison Film Festival is happening at the Bartell Theater this Saturday. The goal of the fest is to offer a more accessible option for filmmakers with smaller budgets. It was started by two seniors at UW-Madison. If you're interested in learning more, we'll toss a link in our show notes. That's all for today here on CityCast Madison. I'm Bianca Martin. If you enjoyed the show, why not share this episode with your favorite international history buff. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more stories from around the city. Ciao.